Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can gather together uh, as your people today, uh, on site and online, uh, around your word. And we pray that you speak to us uh, by your spirit through your word. Uh, we pray that where we need to be warned, you will be warning us. And where we need to be encouraged, you'll be encouraging us. Uh, and most of all, that you'll be drawing us to Christ our Savior. Uh, and we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I recently read a testimony uh, on the internet. Uh, and it went something like this. My grandfather was a courageous man. Uh, he warned people the Titanic would sink, but no one listened. He kept warning them and warning them and warning them until they finally got sick of it and kicked him out of the cinema. Now, the Bible is full of warnings, uh, not like that one. Uh, the warnings of the Bible are deadly serious and must be taken seriously. Uh, and we will see some of them in our passage today. Uh, you may know that 1 and 2 Samuel is generally about how God rescued Israel from the chaos of the time of the judges and brought them under his king. But the judges and then the kings were not the only leaders of Israel. There were also prophets and there were also priests. Uh, next week we will see how God raised up a prophet. But today we are looking at the priesthood. Back in Leviticus, 400 years before this, God had appointed Aaron, Moses' brother, as the first high priest. And from there, the priestly office was passed down from father to son. Eli was the priest at the shrine in Shiloh at the time of our narrative. And a woman named Hannah had come there some years before in great distress. She had pleaded with God to give her a son and promised to give him back to God if he did. And God gave her a baby boy. She named him Samuel. And when Samuel was weaned, she brought him back to the Lord at Shiloh. And there she prayed prophetically in the song we looked at last week about the God who brings reversals. For the reversal he had brought to her situation was paradigmatic of his plan to rescue Israel and indeed the world. Two weeks ago, we were introduced to two of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We weren't told anything about them back then, except that they were priests of the Lord, Yahweh. But this week, we'll see a lot more about them. In fact, the narrative will keep switching from Samuel and his family to Eli and his sons. It's like when we're watching TV and there's a wholesome, happy scene on the one hand and then a horrible scene on the other and the movie keeps flashing between one and the other. Right? The first positive scene is actually the last verse of the passage we read last week. Uh, in verse 11, Hannah Elkanah have fulfilled her, uh, the, the promise that she made. Uh, the family goes home and the boy is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Right? It, it's, it's a picture of, of faithfulness. But then very quickly we switch to the other one. And we're told in verse 12 of chapter 2 that the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Right? They might have been priests of Yahweh, but they had no regard for him. They served him in name, but they didn't really know him or serve him in their heart. They did their job, but they didn't know his character and recognize his rule over their lives. And friends, they've always been religious leaders, men of standing in high office among God's people who don't know him. It's like that in ancient Israel, like that at the time of Jesus, like that throughout church history, it's like that today. 
Just because someone is called reverend this or pastor that doesn't mean they know the Lord. Just because someone's written books or preached to crowds doesn't mean they're really serving God. Uh, even within our own denomination, in other parts of the world, there are bishops and archbishops who deny the authority of God's word and lead people into sin and immorality. There will always be people for whom ministry is a career rather than a heartfelt worship of the God that they know. May that never be anyone here today. May that never be anyone who is watching this at home. Eli's sons were religious, but they did not know God. And they showed that in the way they acted. Now, God in Leviticus had prescribed certain parts of the offering for the priests. Uh, they were the breast of the animal and the right thigh. Uh, but here in Shiloh, the local custom was something different. It was a custom that Eli was probably taught when he was young, and he handed it down to his sons as well. That was just what they did. Uh, and in the local custom, the priest servants, verse 13 to 14, would come while the sacrificial meat was boiling. They'd use a big fork and help himself to whatever part he picked up with that fork. Right? The tradition had actually departed from God's word. And brothers and sisters, tradition is a very useful thing. We would be foolish to try and reinvent the wheel in every generation, right? We stand on the shoulders of our forefathers. But tradition must be constantly tested by Scripture. We need to make sure that we keep the Bible higher than our tradition because the Bible is the Word of God. And we cannot let tradition override the Word of God like they did at Shiloh. But Eli's sons took the already tainted customs to a new height of corruption. You see, God's instructions in Leviticus was that the fat of the offering belonged to him. It was not to be consumed by the priests, it was to be burned on the altar. But these greedy men wanted the fat as well. They wanted to take their share of the sacrifice before the fat was burned. In fact, they wanted it even before it went into the pot where that, that, uh, that their custom had dictated. And so their servant would demand raw meat from the worshippers, saying in verse 15, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And the man said, verse 16, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. The servant would answer, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. God had made provision for his priests, generous provision. But these priests, in positions of power, were using their power to coerce worshippers in the temple to give them what rightly belonged to God. They were abusing their office of priesthood, profaning the holy things of God. And they dared to do it because they did not know the God that Hannah sang of last week. The God who brings judgment on his enemies and salvation for his people. Listen to God's verdict in verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. But what about us today? We no longer have a sacrificial priesthood, but, but, but together we have a royal priesthood. We are God's priests. And what do we offer to God? We offer ourselves, don't we? As a living sacrifice. And if we have offered ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, then, 
then brothers and sisters, we are His. All that we are and all that we have is an offering to Him. But having offered our whole selves to Him, do we actually then start keeping back part for ourselves? Do we say, God, my whole life belongs to you, and then actually, no, I want to take back this bit. Jesus is my Lord, but I don't want Him to exercise His Lordship over, over this area, because I like it as it is, and it'd be too difficult to do something different. Brothers and sisters, our lives belong to God. They are our offering, our worship to Him. Do we prize the fat of the offering more than we fear Him? Do not treat the Lord's offering with contempt. Well, after painting this, this terrible picture of Eli's sons, the narrator switches back to Samuel. And it's a very different picture. We see the little boy in verse 18, ministering before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. Right? An ephod was something the priest would wear on his chest. Uh, it's made with gold and precious stones as well as linen. And Samuel's wearing a little linen one, like, like a cute little replica of the grown-up priest's uniform. Right? Uh, and then every year in verse 19, the mother comes for the sacrifice and brings him a little robe, slightly bigger size each year. Uh, and whenever they come, Eli blesses Elkanah and his wife, verse 20, and prays that God would give them more children. And you know what? God graciously gives Hannah five more. Uh, he hadn't promised to. She didn't earn the right to, to five more children by giving up Samuel, but, but God is kind and generous. And he gives her back even more than she had sacrificed for him, because that's, that's often what God does. And in the meantime, young Samuel is growing up in the presence of the Lord. It's a picture of obedience and blessing, isn't it? But then the narrator switches back to Eli's family. Eli is very old, verse 22. He can't do much, but he keeps hearing terrible things his sons are doing. And now they're getting worse. They've even gone to the extent, verse 22, of laying with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Right? These holy men are turning this holy place into a hotbed of sexual immorality. They are defiling God's shrine. They are behaving in ways completely unfit for priests of Yahweh. Holy people using holy things for sexual immorality. Now that's, just, that's just really awful, isn't it? That's, that's the height of perversity. Brothers and sisters of Christ, remember, in the new covenant, we are the priests of Yahweh. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy people. And our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. They are meant to be holy places. Holy people using holy things for sexual immorality. That's really awful, isn't it? It's very serious. Old Eli knows it is. We have no record of him saying anything to his sons about the fat of the sacrifice, but now he, he finally speaks up and says to his sons in verse 23, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report. I hear the people of the Lord speaking abroad. 
If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? You don't want to make God your enemy. If God is your enemy, who do you think can go and talk to him and ask him not to destroy you? Eli warns his sons. But they do not listen. Why? Well, the end of verse 25. For it's the, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. They had gone so far. Their sin had become so serious. Their service had become so distasteful to God that he had already decided to bring them to judgment. And by the time Eli spoke to them, it was too late. God had already made up his mind and they would not repent. Brothers and sisters, if you are behaving in an immoral way, please, please, please do something about it now. Please come to your senses. Repent. Come back to God now before it's too late. The longer you wait, the harder it will be. Don't keep wandering further and further away from God until you find some excuse to justify why you no longer believe. be evident then persist in that unbelief that you are not elect and you'll be doomed for eternity do not wait until it's too late to repent do not wait until it's too late to call the people you love to repentance either you might say Andrew what, is, what if it's too late already well you only know it's too late when, when you die or Jesus comes again don't you Jesus promised that those who come to him will not be cast out. And he died so that can happen. So if someone listens and repents, then, then you know it wasn't too late. God's Spirit must have been working in their hearts and Jesus will take them in. So what do you do? Don't give up. Listen to the warnings, but repent. Quickly. And bring that warning to those you love as well. Do not wait. Do not wait. It was too late for the sons of Eli. But just before we come to the judgment on them, the, the narrator flashes across back to the other story. For even with Eli being old and worse and worse things happening with his sons, there's still hope on the horizon. Verse 26. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. It's a picture that reminds us that despite this terrible state of affairs in Israel, God is faithful to his promises. And God is going to use this young man to put things right in the end. The narrative quickly flashes across to the other scene. And a man of God comes to Eli to bring God's word to his situation. That was an unusual thing at the time. But listen to what he says in verse 27. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? 
and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Now, are you surprised by hearing this? Do you notice something? God is, who's God accusing? He's God, he's accusing Eli, isn't he? Not his sons. He's saying, I chose Aaron, your ancestor. I made you and your family priests. I gave you part of my offerings. But you have scorned my sacrifice. Not just your sons, you. You let your sons get away with doing what you know is not right with my sacrifices and offerings. You knew what was going on because you ate the fat. The fat that should have been burnt on the altar. You may not have been directly involved in the extortion. You may not have approved of it. You may not have wanted it to happen. But when the choice came, honor my sons and eat the fat with them, or honor me and refuse to participate in their wicked ways, you ate the fat. Not once, not twice. You made yourself fat on my fat, says the Lord. Friends, just because we're not the one actually doing the evil deed doesn't mean we're not part of it. Just like we can be partners in doing good by supporting those who do good, we can be partners in doing evil and reap the rewards of that. God warns us not to participate in the sins of others. The man of God continues in verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever, but now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Right? God had promised Aaron's descendants would have a lasting priesthood. But he says to Eli, You don't presume. Don't take my promises for granted. If you despise me, then the promises will not apply to you. The ones who honor me are the ones whom I honor. And friends, God has made many great and precious promises to us in the gospel. But the danger is there that we will take them for granted. We will think because I'm saved by grace through faith and not by works, then it doesn't matter how I live. I can sin however I please. I can simply defy God's word. Doesn't matter. But of course it matters, doesn't it? For what we do reveals the attitudes of our hearts. If we trust in Jesus, we will honor him by submitting to him as Lord. If we truly have faith, he will show the fruit of salvation in our lives. But if we despise God, if we reject his right to rule our lives and tell us what to do, if we refuse to, to let him run our lives by his word, then, then we don't have saving faith. And the promises, however good they are, they don't, they don't apply to us. Trust in God's promises. But don't despise him by taking them for granted. Eli assumed that because God promised that Aaron and his family would have a permanent priesthood, then him and his sons had secure jobs, no matter what they did. 
But in fact, God was going to bring terrible judgment on this corrupt priestly clan. The, promises, the prophecy continues in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with the envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of man. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And friends, that's exactly what would happen. The two sons of Eli would die in battle. And the house of Eli, from the family of Aaron's son Ithamar, would be ruined. But God was going to bring in a new priestly dynasty. Verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my mind and in my heart. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please place me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. And this came true in the time of Solomon. The priestly house of Ithamar, which Eli belonged to, was overthrown. And Zadok, a descendant of Aaron from his other son, Eleazar, became high priest. He was a faithful priest. And his descendants remained priests before the Davidic king, as long as the Israelite kingship endured. Aaron's line still had the priesthood, as God promised, but Eli's house did not share in the promises. And yet even that does not exhaust the prophecy. For the faithful priesthood of Zadok was a model, a type, a shadow, which, which pointed to an even more faithful priest who was to come. 1,000 years later, the land of Israel would once again be in the grip of corrupt leadership. By then, the position of high priest was a political appointment. It was bought and paid for in cash. And it was as corrupt as the priesthood of Eli's family. And in the midst of this, Luke records some words that are now familiar to us. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 says this, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Do you recognize those words? It's a picture, isn't it? That God was being faithful to his promises to his people. And Jesus would be the ultimate answer to the need for a perfect king, a perfect promise, and also a perfect priest. He would be the priest who would indeed do all that was in God's heart and mind. The priest whose work would sum up and fulfill the work of the Levitical priesthood, rendering it obsolete. He would be the great high priest who would sacrifice himself once and for all on the cross 
and then rise from the dead and ever live to intercede for his people. Remember Eli's question in verse 25? If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Well, friends, in Jesus, we have a priest who will intercede for us. In Jesus, we have someone that we sinners can turn to. In Jesus, we have someone in whom we can find forgiveness for whatever we have done. Even if we have made God our enemy, we can still come back to Him now because Jesus will go and talk for us. And we will find, therefore, it is not too late. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that, that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. So my friend, come back to God through Jesus. Come back through your great incorruptible high priest. Come back through the sacrifice that he made for your sins. Come to the cross. At the cross, God provided the sacrifice that pays for each and every one of our sins. We can be forgiven. But listen, don't despise that sacrifice, will you? Don't treat that with content. That is the only way of salvation. And the Bible warns that if we despise that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, if we ignore it, if we reject it, if we, if we treat it with content by continuing to live in sin as if it never happened, then, then there's nothing left but the fearful expectation of judgment. Do not treat God's offering with contempt. Do not wait until it's too late to repent. Do not take God's promises for granted. Brothers and sisters, we have been warned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for both the warnings and the encouragements that you give us in your word. But please help us all to heed the warnings that we have heard today. And please draw us to Christ, our perfect high priest, who sacrificed himself for our sins and ever lives to intercede for us. We ask this in his name.